Today's episode is sponsored by Heart of Yamala, with high-quality personal care products, like their popular cocoa butter with baobab oil, cocoa butter without wax, and a scent that includes notes of chocolate, vanilla, amber, fruit, and milk. Go to heartofyamala.com to get yours today. That's H-E-A-R-T-O-F-Y-E-M-A-L-L-A dot com. In the forefront is a male figure with outstretched arms. He is naked except for a white loincloth. It is in an abstract expressionistic style, but you can see that the expression on the male face is flat, dead. Behind the figure is a woman who appears to be embracing him. Her eyes too are closed, but for another reason, perhaps in grief. Behind her stands another figure who watches her sadly in her grief. This is the 1956 painting titled Behold Thy Son by David C. Driscoll. The title of the painting comes from a Bible quote from John chapter 19 verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. This work was created as a tribute to Emmett Till, the 14-year-old African-American boy who was brutally tortured and murdered less than a year earlier. It addresses a mother's heartbreaking loss of her son. This is part one of a two-part series on the life and work of David C. Driscoll. This is the Whole Art Nebula, where we explore the path less traveled, uncovering the undermined treasures in art and the stories, the history of Black artists. Clyde Driscoll was born on June 7, 1931, in Eatonton, Georgia, in Putnam County. I want to note here that Eatonton, Georgia was also the birthplace of Joel Chandler Harris, a journalist and folklorist who documented the Uncle Remus stories he collected from slaves. Driscoll was the youngest of four children and the only boy. His father was a Methodist minister and his mother was a housewife. In 1936, at the age of five, he and his family moved to Appalachia in the western part of North Carolina in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Rutherford County. This is where Driscoll spent the majority of his childhood. Before the move, his parents were sharecroppers. Then his father built a house and purchased these 13 acres of land to farm. According to an interview conducted by Cynthia Mills for the Archives of American Art, Smithsonian Institution, where I get the majority of this information for this episode, 
Driscoll attended a one-room segregated elementary school and then a three-room consolidated school. The consolidated school was the combining of three one-room black schools. It was four miles away, so Driscoll and many of his classmates had to be bused to school. In high school, Driscoll had to get up at four in the morning to walk a mile to meet the school bus and travel 35 miles to get to school. Both in and outside of school education was heavily emphasized. Education, he and his peers were told over and over again, was the key out of their situation. Driscoll's father was born in 1905 and his mother in 1907. Both had about the equivalent to a sixth grade education, which at the time was not bad for an African-American considering that slavery had only been abolished 40 years earlier, in which it had been illegal to teach slaves how to read. Then there were the systematic roadblocks. In fact, Driscoll's grandfather, also a minister, was born into slavery. His parents really wanted him to go as far as he could in school. So while some of his classmates missed classes at times during the year to help their families with farm duties, Driscoll was always excused from those duties. Driscoll said in the interview, there were times when I was the only one on that school bus until we got to the next town where there was no farming. His father transitioned from being a Methodist minister to a Baptist one. However, when Driscoll left home, he left the Baptist church and became a Congregationalist, the branch which is now known as the United Church of Christ. He claimed that he was intrigued by the history of the Congregational Church and its advocacy for the abolishing of slavery and how it had set up the first colleges for African-Americans in the U.S. Driscoll would end up being associated with three of them, Howard University, Talladega College, and Fisk University. For more than 30 years, Driscoll would be a member of the People's Congregational United Church of Christ in Washington, D.C. Driscoll's father had an interest in calligraphy, just as his grandfather had. Driscoll's father also sketched in the books where he wrote his sermons. When he was young, Driscoll tried to emulate his father's beautiful penmanship. But while he studied penmanship like a good boy, he would also take his father's theology books when his father wasn't around and on the quote-unquote clean pages draw things like houses and cars. Driscoll said, I did it because I had no paper. Whatever sheets were available, I used. In 1949, Trisco began attending Howard University with plans to become a historian. After taking an art course in 1951, Trisco was urged to change his major from history to art by a professor and artist, James A. Porter. In the spring of 1953, Trisco was given a scholarship to attend the Skohagen School of Painting and Sculpture in Maine. Once there, he met students from all over the country, and it was the first time he had ever traveled north of Baltimore. At this time, James Wells, an artist associated with the Harlem Renaissance, was teaching printmaking and drawing. The artist and art historian James A. Porter 
was teaching painting and art history. The artist Lois Jones taught design and watercolor painting. Driscoll took classes from all of them. He brought up something interesting in the interview. He said that he detected resentment and injustice from Lois Jones because she was not allowed to teach oil painting, though she was a much more prominent artist in the art world than her male counterparts. When Driscoll came back from Skohagen, he had decided that he was not going to do any abstract painting. He wanted to be the type of artist to express social commentary, like Jack Levine, an artist known for his satires on modern life, biblical narratives, and political corruption. But his professor, the artist and art historian James Porter, pushed Driscoll to study with Morris Lewis. Morris Lewis was an abstract artist, one of the leaders in the field of color field painting. If you recall, I spoke briefly about color field painting in the episode on Ed Clark. You might want to go back and listen to it to get a better understanding of what it is. If I say Mark Rothko and you know who he is, then you probably know what color field painting is. Despite Driscoll being adamant about not wanting to become an abstract artist or to study under Morris Lewis, with a little more coaxing from Porter, Driscoll gave in. You know where this is going, right? Driscoll ended up changing his mind about abstract painting and claimed he did some of his best work under Lewis, who was very encouraging. Later that year, without telling his professors, Driscoll submitted one of his works titled City Quartet into an exhibition held by the Society of Washington Artists. Driscoll's work was accepted, but none of the works from his instructors had been. Driscoll said he was timid and quiet about it, afraid of what his instructors would say. To his surprise, they were so proud. This was the year that his professor James B. Herring retired from teaching at Howard. Herring was also an artist and curator and founded the Howard University Gallery of Art in 1922. The next year was 1954. Driscoll's senior year, and again Driscoll was juried into the exhibition with an abstract painting titled Within the City. Because of his study under Morris Lewis, his work was more and more abstract, and Within the City was closer to Colorfield. Driscoll was feeling pretty good about himself, especially after Professor Porter invited him to exhibit at a show in the Midwest with other teachers from Howard. At the same time, he was working as a student curator at the Howard University Gallery of Art. Professor Porter, the painter and art historian, had published a book in 1943 titled Modern Negro Art and taught his students from this book, their textbook. Driscoll said Porter would walk around the classroom never looking at the book, but citing passages from the book. Driscoll was so impressed by this that he'd read the book then go to class, not Porter's class, of course, stand up and recite passages, pretending to be Porter. Driscoll had almost committed the book to memory. So, when Howard University Press reprinted Porter's textbook in 1992, guess who wrote the new introduction? 
I suppose it should be no surprise that Driscoll would write the new introduction to his mentor's work, since Porter had not only encouraged Driscoll to become an artist, but also an art historian as well. In the interview, Driscoll said, he said to me once when I was talking about painting, he said, well, that's fine, he said, but you have a good mind, so you can't just be a painter. You're going to have to help define the field and keep the tradition going. Grassroots organizations are the backbone of communities, and it's one of the many reasons I'm a board member of the Green Foundation. The foundation provides community health education through outreach and navigation to help individuals and families access quality health care in California. For more information or to make a donation, go to thegreenfoundation.net. Driscoll worked like crazy while in college. He not only worked as a curator at the gallery, but he also drove a taxi, worked as a delivery driver, and worked at the Barnett Aiden Gallery, a gallery co-founded by James V. Herring and Alonzo J. Aiden. The Barnett Aiden Gallery was a gallery run from the home of its co-founders, appointment only. As a student, is where Driscoll met the famous Romare Bearden and the writer Langston Hughes. Driscoll said, Professor Herring was like a surrogate father to us. In 1955, he came across an opportunity he didn't want to pass up. When administrators at Talladega College asked if he could teach printmaking, Driscoll said, yes. When they asked if he could teach ceramics, he told them, yes. When they asked if he could teach art education, he said, yes. Driscoll got the job, teaching at Talladega College, calling himself a one-person art department. The truth was, Driscoll had not known how to do any of that, but he wasn't going to let that stop him from getting this job. What he did instead was he read everything he could regarding these disciplines to stay one step ahead of his students. And... He must have been a bad teacher because he cites. There was one gentleman from Pakistan. He was an economics major, and he was one of the students I sent to grad school. He went to Cranbrook Academy and received an MFA in printmaking and ceramics. He came back and taught at Talladega and then became chairman of the Department of Art at Spelman College. Driscoll returned to Washington, D.C. to work on his MFA at Catholic University of America. He said he wanted to attend the school because of the school's history. Catholic University had never barred African Americans from attending and was the only university in the area at the time with that record outside of Howard. This was when Driscoll began his focus on a series of pine trees as he worked on his master thesis. One of the works is titled Young Pines Growing, created in 1959. Another is titled Pines at Falmouth, created in 1961. He said he was searching for other ways of connecting the pine tree to another dimension in life, a theme he drifted back to periodically even after he graduated in 1962. In that year, he was also asked to teach in the art department at Howard. 
which seemed to be his ultimate goal anyway. While there, he taught an art history course that leaned towards philosophy and aesthetics. The class created a buzz. This was not your typical art history course. Stokely Carmichael, who was a philosophy major, took the class. Even some of the other professors sat in. Driscoll said, Howard was a very exciting place to be at that time. It was the center, the hub for activity relating to not only the civil rights situations, but to the political scene and the anti-war effort. His student, Mary O'Neill, who later became a distinguished fine artist, but was only then a student and the girlfriend of Stokely Carmichael, told Driscoll that he was teaching the course in cultural disguise, meaning it was not just art history, but a very passionate kind of civil rights art course. She called it an action course. It focused on topics of where one had to prove that he or she had something to give in society and in art. We're gonna stop here for now, but please join us next time as we continue discussing the life and work of David C. Driscoll in part two. Today's episode was sponsored by Heart of Yamala, creators of high quality personal care products. To get yours, go to H-E-A-R-T-O-F-Y-E-M-A-L-L-A dot this episode was researched and produced by me, Kobina Wright. The theme music was created by Ade. To see images from this episode, go to our website at thewholeartnebula.com. You can also visit us on Instagram at thewholeartnebula. And if you like this episode, I'd be so happy if you left a five-star review. This is, this is the, the Whole, whole Art, art Nebula. 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 nebula.